All right, um, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, as we continue to talk about uh, the titles that are given to the coming king, um, we're still going to be looking at verses 6 to 7. As you're turning there, um, I just want to ask if any of you have ever heard this question from a skeptic or maybe a smart aleck. could be either one. Um, how many of you have ever had somebody ask you when they, when they, because they know you're a Christian, if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that's so heavy that he himself can't lift it? Have they ever had someone ask you that question? Um, that's a favorite um, from skeptics or non-believers or atheists um, who think they're clever and the, as if this question is going to be the question that takes down Christianity, you know, um, the truth is that there are things that God cannot do. And so God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot contradict his character. So um, to create a rock that's so heavy that he himself cannot lift is like contradictory to reality. But just because God cannot violate his own character does not mean that he's not all-powerful. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Because God is all-powerful, he has the strength of will to never violate his own character by doing something that's unholy or unrighteous. So um, we're going to be looking today at the title Mighty God because it says in the text that he will be called Mighty God. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at God's might and power and, and kind of break that down a little bit, look at what we see in Scripture, what we can learn from Scripture about God's power. We're going to look at the divinity side of it because he's called Mighty God. Um, so let's uh, read the text and then we'll get into it. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we humbly approach your word, asking you to teach us, recognizing that no matter how long we live and how much we learn and how deep we go into your word, that there, there is always more. And so we have read this text thousands of times throughout the course of life, and your church quotes it at Christmas time every year. Um, but I pray that we that you reveal something more to us today that has been there the whole time, and we just. Uh, I pray that we are ready for, for you to reveal more of yourself to us in this text um, so that we walk away from here 
understanding you more, being closer to you, having a, a closer intimacy with you, and appreciating even more what you did through the incarnation when Christ came and was born of Mary and his life and ministry and his death and resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so I might not be able to do this every week. Um, it just depends on the amount of material I'm going to try to get through. But last week I gave you, before we got into the actual title, um, I gave you a little bit of, uh, we, we walked through some of the text, the other part of the text, and some of the context within which this, um, these titles are given in the prophecy in Isaiah. I'm going to just touch a little bit on something again this week before we get into talking about Jesus being mighty God. Because um, I mentioned when we, when we started into this last week, I mentioned that um, Isaiah's prophecy gives the Messiah these four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, and after the sermon last week, someone came up to me and mentioned to me that there are some versions in the Bible that list these as seven separate descriptions. And so the first um, point in your notes is four titles or seven. And so um, in translations that have seven different descriptions, they separate them all by commas. And so they separate them wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty, comma, like that. Um, so I just thought I would mention this because some of you might be using a Bible that lists them that way. Um, and you may be wondering why some list it one way and some list it another way. You may be wondering why I landed on four as opposed to seven. Um, and the reality is if you were to gather a group of people who are experts and, and scholars in ancient Hebrew, you would have a divided group because... The reason why there are different translations is because there are people who think it should be one way and people who think it should be the other way. Um, so, um, and I say seven as opposed to eight because Prince of Peace is, is one. Um, but uh, I'm going to just, just so that you know where I'm coming from, I'm going to just explain to you why I think it's four. Um, but in the end, it really doesn't. It really doesn't matter. It it makes sense if you were to read it either way, because it could read, "He will be called wonderful," "He will be called counselor," "He will be called mighty," "He will be called God." It could read that way, and it wouldn't compromise the message of Scripture or the prophecy in any way. Um, so. In the end, like, I'm okay with either translation. I'm just going to explain to you why I think, why I land on four. So, um, if you break down the use of the language, wonderful, mighty, everlasting, and peace are all, are, are usually used as adjectives. And I include peace in that because in the text it says prince of peace. So of peace is a prepositional phrase and prepositional phrases 
can be adjectives as well. They can be descriptors um, as well. And so wonderful, mighty, everlasting, and peace, or the prepositional phrase of peace, are usually used as adjectives. Um, counselor, God, Father, and Prince are all nouns. Okay? So I think Isaiah has grouped them with a or with a an adjective and a noun together. If if he if it's intended to be seven, which is fine, it, it's just interesting to me that he alternated them: adjective, noun, adjective, noun, adjective, noun. Um, so that's kind of just where I land and why I land there. Um, like some of you might have been wondering, some of you probably don't care and some of you are probably like I didn't come to church to get an English lesson um, but English grammar is a passion of mine so you're, you're stuck with it sorry um, so that's why I think it's four it's some people think it's seven it could be either but just so that you know where I'm coming from all right so point number two is we're going to get into the title now uh, Jesus the powerfully divine Jesus the powerfully divine. All right, the Hebrew word here that's translated mighty God is El Gabor. El is the Hebrew word for God, and so El Gabor is mighty God. I was reading this week, um, there's a rabbi, his, last, his name is Rabbi Schneider, I was reading um, some commentary that he had on this text on this, specifically on this word El Gabor. Um, he's a Jewish rabbi who has come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah that was sent and so he is a, he's a believer in Christ. Um, but he stated this about this phrase, this word El Gabor, this title. He said that it describes God as a mighty warrior and champion. A mighty warrior and champion. And then he said this um, after he described that, he said, God always prevails. Um, so I think this is an important understanding of the coming of the Messiah when you get, especially when you get into the latter part of Isaiah's, of Isaiah's writings, because we're in chapter 9, Isaiah goes 66 chapters, and so we're relatively in the beginning of his, of his writing. When you get into the latter part, specifically chapters 52 and 53, where he starts to prophesy about the Messiah who is to come and the suffering that the Messiah will go through, when he's describing, um, I don't know if Isaiah knew what kind, what kind of death the Messiah would, would go through, but he was prophesying what was going to take place in terms of his suffering. He said this, he, he, he said... Um, in chapter 52, the end, of, the end of chapter 52, he says that, the, that God's chosen servant was beaten so severely that he didn't even look human anymore. And so I think this is an uh, important understanding, especially when you get into the end of Isaiah's prophecies, because if you're hearing that the Messiah is going to be beaten beyond human recognition, it would be a good thing to remember that earlier on in the writing, Isaiah said that, speaking by the Holy Spirit, that the coming Messiah is going to be mighty God, okay? Because it would be pretty 
deflating and disheartening for somebody who's going to put their hope in somebody who's going to be beaten so badly that you won't even recognize him as a man anymore. We need to remember that God is a mighty warrior and a champion that always prevails. And we see this, this phrase, El Gabor, used also in Jeremiah 32. Um, in, we're going to read 17 and 18, but then um, also verse 20. So here, here's another place in Scripture where God is called mighty God. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So there's a description right there of his power. Nothing is beyond your power. You shall love the thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, right there. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty. And then verse 20, I wanted to bring this in too, because he says, You performed signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among all mankind and, and have gained the renown that is still yours. All right, so what we see in this specific text in Jeremiah, not only that he uses the same name for God, and he's talking about, he's talking about God, um, their understanding of God, not the Messiah to come, but, but he's just using the same title that Isaiah gives to the Messiah to come. And he says, he, he, he gives them that title, but then he says this in verse 20, look at what he did. He performed the signs and wonders in Egypt, and he's still doing it to the time of, of Jeremiah's day. He's doing it in Israel, and he's doing it among mankind. And so everybody in Israel is seeing it, and God is demonstrating his power among all mankind so that he will be glorified. And so here we see God displaying his mighty power so that he is glorified in all the earth, which is going to be what God desires for his chosen servant that's going to come. We know him, this side of the cross, to be Jesus. So Isaiah is, that's the kind of God Isaiah is talking about when he's describing the coming Messiah. In, in our text in chapter 9 of Isaiah, Last week, I referenced some of the verses that came before this. This is not in our text, but I referenced it because it's part of the context of our text. And in those previous verses, you'll recall we talked last week that he mentions Gideon defeating the Midianites, which um, when, I, when I chose to go this route with Sermon for Christmas, I did not do it because he mentioned Gideon and the Midianites. Um, I just found it an interesting connection that we're going through judges in our normal sermon series, and he brings it up. But two things here about those previous verses that I want to bring in with this particular title. Uh, first, I think it's interesting that the prophecy in Isaiah speaks about Gideon defeating the Midianites because... Gideon was the one that the angel came to, if you remember. It wasn't that long ago we went through the beginning of chapter 6 in Judges. Gideon was the one that the angel came to, and do you remember what he called him? He said, greetings. Do you remember? Mighty warrior, which 
according to this rabbi, is what this word El Gabor encapsulates. This idea that God is a warrior who's mighty and a champion. And so, first, I think it's interesting that the prophecy takes the reader back to the time of Gideon, where Gideon is the one who's called Mighty Warrior, and now we're being told that the coming Messiah will be called El Gabor. Um, second, though, if you remember, the story of Gideon and his defeating of the Midianites is like, it's like the greatest underdog story ever, right? We all love to see the underdog be victorious, right? Well, you've got, you've got Israel's being oppressed by the Midianites, the Midianite army, and they've, they've allied with a couple of other nations, but the army that was under the Midianite command, if you remember, the text in Judges says that they were like locusts covering the, the ground. Um, it actually says that they, they couldn't even, their camels couldn't even be counted. You don't have, you don't have a camel per man when you, you know, back in that time. Most of your soldiers walked. If your camels can't even be counted because they're so numerous, then that is an enormous army. Um, and you might remember that the text in Judges tells us that there was 135,000 soldiers in the Midianite army. And they were defeated by a ragtag army of 300 men who had God on their side. The mighty power of the God of all creation was put on display as he fought for this small band of men who belonged to him. It's a fitting reference, referencing this story that is so, so much of an underdog story. It's a fitting reference for Isaiah's prophecy to, to reference, to go back to that in the reader's mind because what Isaiah is creating here, I think, is also very much what looks like an underdog story. You've got a child. Remember, he says, for to us, a child is born. So we have a baby that he's talking about. A child is born. You see, you have this child. And, and think, of, think of children, especially babies. Do you think of mighty power? and sufficiency and all that stuff when you think of a baby. No, like that, they don't have any of that stuff. They're, they're gentle and they're weak and they're needy, right? Um, no one told me when I was gonna getting ready to become a parent that kids were gonna need me so much. Um, I thought that, that, would, that they would grow out of that, but um, you know, so kids, even kids as they grow up, they're still in need of instruction and guidance and sometimes wisdom that you've learned that they haven't. They sometimes need help because they're not fully developed into adults, but all the more a baby. And Isaiah says, a child is born. And so you've got this picture of a baby who's supposed to be called mighty God. It's like comparing D David with Goliath or comparing the 300 men with the 135,000 men. A baby is not what you think of when you think of mighty power. And so Isaiah creates this image 
that is kind of like an underdog picture like we saw in the time of Gideon that he just referenced in the verses right before this. But we are told he will be called mighty God. So as we look at God's power, there are five things that I have I left blanks in your notes that you can fill in. Five ways or, or areas of life that God demonstrates his power and his sovereignty in this world or in our lives. God demonstrates his power over mankind, specifically the heart and the mind of mankind. And so what I'm going to do with each of these is I'm just going to run through a handful of examples that we see in Scripture. Um, you, can take, you can take down the references if you want. You don't have to. But this is just to give you a really quick and a really broad view of God's power. Um, so as he has sovereignty and power over mankind, I think of places like Exodus 12 where he caused the Egyptians as he was leading his people out of Egyptian slavery, he caused the Egyptians to gladly give the Israelites their possessions. God said, when you're leaving, ask them for their jewelry, ask them for clothing, ask them for food and that stuff. And they did. All they did is they just had to ask. And they were like, take it. Take it all. Like, and so it's, the text actually says that in that way, they plundered the Egyptians. And so God... God moved in their hearts and their minds to give what was asked of them by his people Israel. Another one is um, Ezra chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2, where God moved the hearts of King Cyrus and King Artaxerxes to allow the Israelites to rebuild Jerusalem. So God demonstrates his power over man, specifically the heart and the mind of mankind. Um, number two, God demonstrates his power and sovereignty over nature. This, these, are, these are easier to see in Scripture. So you got Exodus 13 and 14 where he parted the Red Sea. His people needed to get across, so he parts the sea. He does it in his timing so that when the Egyptians follow in, he puts it back together and they all drown. Daniel chapter 6, he, he shows his sovereignty over his creation, especially his creatures, Daniel, when he was in the lion's den and God shut the mouths of the lions so they didn't harm him. In Mark chapter 4, so now we're getting into the time when Jesus is walking the earth and he's in his ministry. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calmed the storm when he was in the boat with his disciples and they thought they were going to die. Mark, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walked on water. And so he sh demonstrates his power over nature as well. Number three, he demonstrates his power and his sovereignty over uh, disease. Um, in Luke chapter 8, we read about a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and had spent her whole life savings on doctors trying to figure out how to take care of it and none of them could figure it out and so she spent all of her money and had gotten nowhere but she knew Jesus was coming through and she and she said to herself if I just touch the hem of his of his robe of his garment when he walks by I will be healed and she does and power goes out from him that he feels and she's healed instantly so there's an example of where we, we often put God's status on our doctors 
expect them to perform miracles. Um, they don't. They're they're not God. They don't always know how to how to fix things. But God is sovereign over disease. John chapter nine. Jesus healed a man who'd been born blind. One of the things the Messiah was supposed to do, according to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61, was that he was going to give sight to the blind. But nobody had ever, in the, in the history of Israel, certainly, but the whole world, really, nobody had ever heard of someone who had been born blind receiving their sight. And Jesus... Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He was laying by the pool um, near, the, near the temple, and they had a belief that when the waters were stirred, an angel came down, and the first person who could get in the water would be healed, but he couldn't ever be the first person because he couldn't use his limbs. And so... Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you want to be well? And he said, no one will help me in. And he said, he said, I can make you well. And he healed him. He'd been in that condition for 38 years of his life. So God demonstrates his power over disease. Number four, God demonstrates his power over death. Elijah and Elisha both by the power of the Holy Spirit working through them, both brought a boy back to life. That's 1 Kings 17 for Elijah and 2 Kings 4 for Elisha. Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back to life in Luke chapter 8. And it's the one that, other, the resurrection, other than Jesus's, that's the most well-known, is John chapter 11, where Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. The Jewish mindset, the belief at the time, was that when you died, your spirit hovered over your body for three days just in case you came back. So it didn't want to just abandon you and take off. It kind of, they thought it just hovered there. But by day four, there's no chance. Jesus arrives late on purpose. It's been four days, and he demonstrates his power over death by bringing Lazarus back to life. All right, number five, God demonstrates his power over sin and evil. Over sin and evil. It's one thing to be able to display your power over things that happen in this world, We've been talking about Moses in, um, in Sunday school, and one of the things we've been talking about is how the Egyptian magicians were able to somehow imitate some of, the, some of the miracles that God was doing through Moses and Aaron, like Moses threw the staff down, it became a snake, and then they threw their staffs down, and they became snakes, only to have Aaron's snake eat them all. But they also somehow made look like water had been turned into blood like like God did through Aaron when he struck the Nile River with his staff. Um, so it's one thing to demonstrate power over things in this world, but it's another thing to demonstrate power over the spiritual realm. 
But Jesus in Matthew 8, this is one of many examples where he drove out demons when he drove the demons into the pigs that were in a nearby field. And they had to submit to him. So they knew he was going to drive them out, and so they begged him not to not to just drive them out, but to rather send them into the pigs. So they knew he had sovereignty over them. In Matthew chapter 17, he drove a demon out of a child, or uh, might have been a, a young man, but it was a guy's son, and his disciples, who he had previously given authority to drive out demons and had actually done it and experienced it, they couldn't drive this demon out. But Jesus came down the mountain after he'd been up on the mountain of transfiguration. And he came down and the man asked him if he could do anything. And he drove the demon out of that boy. And ultimately, his power over sin and evil came at the cross and the resurrection that brought victory over sin and evil. Um, and that's recorded in all four Gospels. All right, so that was just designed to quickly run through something to give you a wide spectrum of what we see God's power that's, that is recorded in Scripture and all the many areas that we see him sovereign over all things. However, that doesn't even mention, that list that I went through doesn't even mention the greatest demonstration of God's power. Um, if I were to ask you what the greatest miracle in the Bible is, how many of you would think the resurrection. Um, the resurrection certainly is the greatest in terms of significance. It's the most significant of God's miracles. It is not, however, the, most sig the, the greatest in terms of God demonstrating how much power he has. That miracle is creation. Because God created everything out of nothing there was nothing there and God just spoke and his words have so much authority that he just spoke and that stuff came into being and if he can create the universe out of nothing and he continues to sustain that the order of that universe then he he can certainly intervene in his own creation and bring a man back to life, that would be nothing for him if he has the power to create everything out of nothing. So the resurrection is the most significant of all of his miracles, but it's not the one that demonstrates the most power. That's, that's nothing for him to bring someone back from the dead. And so in Matthew 28, as we talk about God's power and how Isaiah is saying the Messiah will have that power, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, this is after he's come and he's completed his mission of redemption and he's been resurrected and victorious over sin and evil and death. And he says this, he says, all authority, everything in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. There's nothing that is not under my sovereign hand. We discussed last week that this passage that we're talking about in Isaiah <coughs> is not focused necessarily on Jesus' birth. It's about his second coming, his, his kingdom to come. 
at his birth, though, even though this text is about his, his kingship more than anything, at his birth, he was still fully God. He had subjected himself to the order of this world, but he was still fully God when born of Mary. He didn't, he wasn't born a human and become, and then later became God. He was fully God at birth. So he came as a baby, vulnerable and helpless and needy. He had temporarily divested himself of his omnipotence. So while he walked the earth, there were some things of his God being all-powerful that he let go of, God being all-knowing that he let go of. So at that point, not all authority was his yet, but after he'd completed the mission and he was meeting with his disciples in his resurrection body, he then claimed that all authority over everything had been given to him. That's the power of God. Nothing is outside of God's power or outside of God's authority. So he is mighty. Mighty God. He is mighty. And we just walked through the mighty part of that. The God part's not as long. So don't fear. But it also says that he will be God. It says he will be called Mighty God. So we've discussed the might and the power of God. We've discussed how the Messiah will be called Mighty because he's going to demonstrate that same power. But Isaiah says he's also going to be divine. And Isaiah makes it very clear here that the Messiah will be God. This is not one of those places in Scripture where gods are used in a way that we're like, wait, can humans be gods? You know, there are a couple places where the language is, is funny because it's an ancient language that nobody uses anymore. But this, this is not what he's talking about. He's giving him a name that in Jeremiah was given to God himself. He makes it very clear that he will be God, and since the prophecy speaks of him coming as a baby in verse 6, that means he's going to be God in the flesh, up close and personal with his creation. So we have places like John 1.1, where John tells us that the word was with God in the beginning, the word being Jesus, was, was with God in the beginning. So long before he was born, eternity passed. He was with God. John also says that, he, that the word was actually God. Is he wasn't just hanging out with God, he was God. And then he says in John 1.14, the word, that, that God that he was talking about from eternity past became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And so he wrapped himself in the flesh of a baby and then he grew up and the disciples, as John is saying in John chapter 1, experienced him. They experienced him personally as he dwelt among them. And 
they witnessed, John says, we've seen his glory. They witnessed his glory. They, they listened to his teaching. They watched him perform miracles. They watched him love people who are unlovable. Many of us are. And they watched him. And they witnessed him in all of his glory. There's a reason the disciples were willing to die for the gospel message because they experienced Jesus more personally than anyone else on the earth and they knew without a doubt that he was God in the flesh. This is who Isaiah is talking about, who will be called Mighty God. So, let me wrap up. As we celebrate Christmas, it's right and good to focus on Jesus' birth because it's a vital part of the plan of redemption that God would come in the flesh. But let us not lose sight of the fact that that baby, born of a woman, lying in a manger, vulnerable and helpless, was still fully God. When he came, he didn't give up an ounce of his divinity. He simply gained complete humanity on top of it. At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about how even though God is all-powerful, he cannot violate his own character, right? But when Jesus came in the flesh and he gained humanity, one of the things he gained with that is the ability to allow his human nature to fall into sin, which is what makes it so amazing that he didn't sin. He never sinned one time, but by taking on human flesh, he put himself in a spot where, when tempted, he could have given in to that and allowed himself to sin. But he didn't. He died a death then that he didn't deserve because he was taking punishment for us, for our sins. Now he's crowned king of all kings. And Isaiah is looking forward to that time. He will not only be called Wonderful Counselor, he will also be called Mighty God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, so much of what we gain in your word as we read. The more we read, the more we learn. The more we learn, the more we realize how much there is to learn. But it draws us close to you and teaches us more about you, makes us hunger to know more. And Father, ultimately, your, your greatest revelation of yourself so that we can learn and know you was through Jesus. And so when we celebrate his birth, celebrate it because of what it would lead to which was his death on our behalf and his resurrection to conquer sin and death and evil and to give us hope for eternal life so let us as we celebrate his birth celebrate that in the context of his death and resurrection 
In Jesus' name.